Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. All right, Joe, so we had a big week last week. We're on the heels of the great impeachment debate. TBD, who the final winner of that one will be, we'll find out on the unredacted episode for part two. But we also got a presidential candidate announcement. Uh, Joe Biden announced that he was running for president this past week. How does Biden jumping in officially shake up the race? Well, let's start with the definition of TBD. <laughs> Joe won. <laughs> Philippe lost. And just like Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, we'll have a rematch. But well, this this time, Joe's going to win again. Philippe so. is not here to defend himself, but I'll allow it. Okay. Biden getting in the race. I, I think Biden getting into the race uh, formally starts the second phase of the Democratic uh, nomination process. The first phase was... 18 or 19 people getting in, most of whom were not known to the American public and even to activists. Most of them are first-time presidential candidates. I think all of them are first-time presidential candidates. And the competition was to show you could raise money, you could uh, be relevant, get attention, draw a crowd in New Hampshire, Iowa. And some did very well. Um, some, Some did less well. But there was one other thing that happened in the first phase that I don't think has gotten that much attention, which is among the establishment politicians, Biden's, you know, thinking about it, cleared the field of a bunch of them. Michael Bloomberg is not running because he thought Joe Biden was getting in. Terry McAuliffe is not running, I think. He had other reasons articulated because Joe Biden's running. Even Sherrod Brown, who is a progressive But, you know, an establishment figure uh, in the party, I think, looked at Biden and thought, there's not room for me uh, if Joe Biden's in that. So he played in the first phase by clearing out uh, some of the candidates. But it was mostly about uh, Mayor Pete and Beto and Kamala and Bernie Sanders. Second phase is the most crucial for Biden by far. Uh, One of two things is going to happen, I believe, in this phase. He's going to establish himself as a strong frontrunner. He's going to raise a bunch of money. He's going, to, he's going to suck up a lot of the attention, the oxygen that these candidates all need, which is attention, particularly from the media. And the fight will really be who's the alternative, whether it's someone who's more progressive or someone who is a woman or someone a woman of color. But it'll be 19 people fighting each other while Joe Biden is out there promoting Joe Biden and probably attacking Donald Trump. Uh, and making it about me versus uh, Donald Trump. Right, which he did out of the gate. Yeah. The second thing that could happen is uh, he doesn't get off to a strong start, and he falls back into the pack, and he becomes one of 20. And that's that's political suicide for him. If he falls back into the pack and isn't the, the exceptional candidate, it's very hard to see uh, him putting uh, a campaign together that can revive, you know, a a bad first three months. It's not impossible. John McCain was in last place in 2008, um, one month before the New Hampshire primary. 
John Kerry was in last place uh, among Democrats, I think, in December of 2003. Not impossible, but very, very difficult. So this is a critical, what I think is about a three-month period between now and when they all get on the debate stage, which I think is June or July. So what would you say to any of the candidates that have to set themselves up as an alternative to Biden? If you were advising one of them and pick an actual one or just pick uh, the royal one, uh, how do they set themselves up uh, to be an alternative to Biden if, if Route 1 happens to take place? They have to make the case that Democrats, voters, and America is looking for something different, and they each have a unique way of doing that. Uh, Bernie Sanders can't say this is a generational thing because he's just as old as Biden. Right. Uh, So he has to say that Biden's about incrementalism in the past and, you know, sort of getting along with Republicans. That's not not what I'm for. The women in the race, Kamala, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, uh, they have to talk about this is the women's time. And it is a little generational, but it's also gender-based. Cory Booker will make the case that someone of color, this is a moment that's both generational and experiential, uh, you know, in his life. So I think we'll see a variety of, I don't even want to call it attacks, comparisons that uh, Democrats will make. And it'll be everything from, I guess, generational, which there'll be very subtle ways of saying, and maybe not so subtle, of saying you're too old. And then there'll be some ideological, and they'll go after his record. They'll go after where he was in the 70s on busing, where he was in the 80s on Anita Hill, where he was in the 90s on the crime bill. These are all things that I think Biden has the ability to put in context over a 40-year career. But that's, that's where you'll see the jockeying going on. Again, it'll be a contest to, uh, to become the alternative to Joe Biden, the imperfect candidate, because he's too moderate, too old, too inside Washington, too TBD. So it actually seems like it's already begun, and it's from one of the the women candidates. I saw that Elizabeth Warren was making comments about him being on the side of the credit card companies, which is perhaps the, the next phase, the 2000s, going after how he behaved in the wake of the financial crisis uh, and not making it about gender. So it, it'll be interesting to see how they all have their own spin. But her initial attack, so you so you may call it, seems to square with how she's handled her issues-oriented campaign thus far. Right. I mean, and and you make a great point with Elizabeth Warren, who doesn't stand up there and say, you ought to elect me because I'm a woman. She says, you ought to elect me because I have the best policies. What she's referring to is a somewhat obscure and long-running battle that happened in Congress um, where a bunch of Democrats, as I remember, I think Chris Dodd was the leader on the Democratic side. I don't remember who on the Republican went through a lengthy uh, process to change the bankruptcy laws. And in that process, the the credit card companies got some concessions, uh, and the bill was passed on a bipartisan basis. It's this, you know, the 90s, it was a time where we actually passed bills that did a lot of good for a lot of people. But the criticism uh, of the bill uh, from some was that it was too easy on the credit cards. So here's the interesting point. When Bill Clinton went to start dealing with this bill, he decided to form a commission on the bankruptcy bill. He appointed Elizabeth Warren as the chair of that commission. This was Elizabeth Warren's first foray into it's. It's when I found out who Elizabeth Warren was. I mean, I had no idea who she was. 
No other Democrats really had any idea. She was a Harvard professor. Her political career began on the issue of bankruptcy. So it's not surprising. But it's also uh, illustrative, as you said, of how she'll come after him. She'll come after him on policy uh, and draw the contrast uh, on policy. She's not going to do age either. She's also over 70. So it's going to be very interesting. You know, if you're sitting in the Biden camp, you are going to feel a little like a pinata. But the interesting thing is if you're being hit on 15 things and they're all different, that's a pinata with someone with a blindfold on. These are not they may not be surgical strikes that really go after him and hurt him. But that's you know, that's what's going to be really interesting to watch. Why do you think he waited until now? A couple of reasons. If you are the front runner and the establishment candidate, you want to shorten the campaign. Lengthening the campaign can only make things bad for you. So by shortening the campaign uh, in any way he can, I think that helps him. So that's that's one. That's that's conventional wisdom, political, you know, theory. Secondly, I think he wanted to have the field for at least the first phase have a chance to go after each other. In that case, in that uh, context, I think they he might be a little bit disappointed because the field really hasn't done much right. to each other. Um, which, which is is interesting. I don't think it hurts him that they didn't. And then I think the third thing is that he wanted to come out uh, very strongly on the fundraising number. So he he wanted a long runway, uh, and he did. He came out. He's now raised more money in the first twenty four hours than any other candidate. Uh, people talk about Bernie Sanders list from two thousand sixteen and Beto's two thousand eighteen performance. Joe Biden's got a list that's more valuable than all of that. He's got the Obama list, and it turned out and it performed for him. So I think he wanted to delay it to shorten this campaign a little bit, and he also wanted to come out and show people just how strong he was. Early on, one of the few metrics that matter is the the money you raise. The polls don't really mean that much at this point, but if you, as the frontrunner, as the most identifiable candidate, came out and raised only half of what Bernie Sanders raised, you you know the press would go crazy and it would be Biden campaign already faltering. Uh, I think the timing of this was wise. I think it was a hard decision for him. He's in a place in his life where he doesn't have to do this. He's in a place in his life where just getting in and making a good showing is meaningless. But I think in the end, it, it was important for him to do it. You know, we, he was on TV in, I think, his first TV appearance, he has a authenticity and credibility when he says things like, I just hope my son is proud of me. And that can't help but believe that that really is the driving force. You mentioned earlier uh, part of phase one and his really kind of not being quite in it yet was clearing the field of moderates and mentioned several moderates that, that aren't entering the race, like Mike Bloomberg. What about Mayor Pete? We might not know a ton about his policy positions. He's put up a, a video wall, I think. He could be one of the moderates staying in. Mayor Pete uh, is an interesting alternative to Biden, uh, just as he's an interesting alternative to Bernie Sanders in a way. So let me explain what I mean by both of those. The white man trifecta. <laughs> I think that was a little snark there. But I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to, I am going to overcome my white privilege and let that go. Um, but we will come back to it um, okay. because you remember we had Margaret Sullivan on and she made that point and I agree with it and you, yeah. I agree with your point. The, the reason I, I'm, I'm comparing Buttigieg to Sanders 
uh, and he's hurting Bernie as far as uh, his support. That's where it's coming from, is more of a movement politics, a different kind of politics as opposed to Elizabeth Warren's specific legislative stuff. And I think that's dangerous to Bernie because the the movement is of young people, and if they're both you know, saying roughly the same things, wouldn't you rather have someone your own age you know, running? So I think that's one. I think the great asset that uh, he, the mayor, has now is he is a little bit of a blank slate, and he is drawing it and filling it in a- as we speak. So he can also go up uh, against Biden and say, I'm not to the far left of the party. You can't put a label on me. Uh, I want to do what's best. I, 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 he's made a point in every speech of saying, I want to talk to Trump voters. We need to get them back, which is Biden's appeal to get those blue-collar Democrats back to right. the party. But I don't have this 40 years that I have to explain away like you do. Yep. I'm not in my 70s. I'm in my 30s, and I'm cooler than you. So he has, again, assets that position himself very well against the people who are above him in the, in the polls right now. And I think we should. I think we all need to take him very seriously. Now, with anyone who's a blank slate, any new piece of information that's negative could be devastating. People would would always say, "Why during you know the year or two of Bill Clinton scandals did his numbers not come down?" It's because people had made up their mind about him. There was very little that someone could say that people would say, "Oh, I'm going to change my mind about him. That makes him better. That makes him worse." Well, the mayor. People have a, ni- a nice and good and warm feeling about, um, but as that picture gets clearer and the puzzle pieces come together, negative information is more damaging to him than it might be to a Joe Biden or a Bernie Sanders. So I want to contextualize Biden in the history of individuals, of candidates who have run against an incumbent president. And the last two candidates to successfully challenge incumbent presidents were, of course, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. In his announcement video, Reagan didn't even mention President Carter. And in the 36-minute speech in October of 1991, then-Governor Bill Clinton only mentioned President George H.W. Bush twice, once on an education policy issue and the other by saying this. We've got to turn this country around and get it moving again. We've got to fight for hardworking middle-class Americans for a change. We're not going to get that positive change just by Bush bashing. We've got to engage in the old-fashioned work of confronting the real problems of real people and pointing a way to a better future. Why did Joe Biden deviate from the successful Reagan-Clinton playbook? Because I think it's a different time. Uh, And that Clinton guy, he really, he's pretty smart. I I like that. I would probably vote for him three or four times. I think it is a different time, and because the field is so crowded and because Biden is in a unique position. He's the oldest presidential candidate, and he does have a ideological record that can be picked at. I think his strategy is to not assume inevitability that he'll get the nomination, but to try to set this up as a fight with Trump, that what Trump has done to this country, and you saw this in his video, and I think he, you know, he made this point over and over again, that what Trump has done, if we allow him another four years, that this country will fundamentally change. The fabric of our country, our democracy, will be forever changed. And the only way 
to stop that is to beat him in 2020. And given who Joe Biden is, the experience he has, the ability to uh, draw on that experience and to be tough. So I think it's a it's a wholly different dynamic than uh, Reagan had. Reagan, remember, had run before. Reagan had been governor of California. Uh, Reagan was known, you know, as a Hollywood actor. He was a household name. Um, Clinton had been around the Democratic establishment for, you know, 11, 12 years at this point, much more than most of the people in this race. Now, it's a strategy that has risks. As a political scientist, if you're looking over the whole landscape, uh, candidates who argue inevitability tend to either lose or halfway through the race fall behind and have to change their message. Hillary Clinton in 2008's message was, it's inevitable I'm going to be the nominee, so let's let's dispense with this little nomination process and get going on becoming president. And Barack Obama basically went around America and saying, hey, wait a second, I'm here. You don't have to vote for me, but you might want to listen to what I have to say. And it backfired on her. I think as a rule, it is not a great strategy. I think given this situation for Biden, it is the right strategy. So not only did Biden announce that he was running for president this week, he also announced that he had recently spoken to Anita Hill and that he didn't quite apologize, so I understood it, but that they had spoken. And then it came out that she wasn't quite satisfied with what he had to say. Yeah, I've got um, a little bit of a problem on, on two levels with this. One, he should have spoken to Anita Hill a while ago. And even in the context of running for president, the last thing you want to do is have an issue like this get in the way of your announcement message. And I think, I listen, I think his rollout was good, but this was a flaw in the rollout. Once he knew he was running for president, well, first off, he probably should have talked to her uh, well before 2019, uh, in my view. Uh, but once he knew he was running for president, you needed to take that off the table. That's from a totally political nuts and bolts point of view. The second thing is he's had this issue and he's had the issue of his invading people's personal space. Uh, it's one of the things I love about Joe Biden. He's a warm, gregarious guy and he's a hugger and all of those things. But the world changes, and I think he's acknowledged that the world has changed. Both of them are, in my view, way too conditional. Like, if you have a problem with it, then I will change or I'm sorry. There's nothing wrong with apologizing, but you've got to take ownership of it. If you take responsibility and not try to put it on the people that have a problem with you, people will listen. And I think Biden has a lot of support out there. I think he has a lot of support among women. But I think the one thing that I keep hearing is he's not really taking responsibility here. He's saying that if a woman has a problem with it, then he'll he'll address that. Or if Anita Hill had a problem with that. So I think going forward, if if you know another issue comes up, you just deal with it in a straightforward way. I just there's just something about conditional uh, statements and conditional apologies that that for me, they just don't work and they create more of a problem rather than solve the problem. 
All right. So let's switch gears and talk about the world post Mueller report. We've now had a while to absorb it, to digest it, some people to actually read it, some people to just comment on it. We've had uh, lots of reporting, commentary, some criticism, some claiming victory. But you had in um, some comments in, in, on journalism and in covering the Mueller report, you had some advice for journalists and what your suggestion is for how reporters should cover comments by President Trump that directly directly contradict the sworn testimony published in the report itself. What was that advice? First off, let me tell you, when I uh, publicly give advice to journalists, they really love it. They really, they sit and they think hard about it. Take notes. And then they use a bunch of words back to me that I'm not going to repeat here because I don't want that explicit thing on it. It, It's like any profession, but journalists are particularly um, sensitive to anyone saying, here's how you can do your job better. And the fact of the matter is they do very good work. Here's my point. Uh, Before the Mueller report, it was a little bit of a he said, she said, which is the president denied everything. And there were reports based on sources that contradicted what the president said. The most significant part from a reporting point of view of the Mueller report being out is it's no longer anonymous sources or, uh, you know, a source tells us Don McGahn said or a source tells us that Sarah Sanders said, we now have 448 pages of information. And the critical part of that is people have told information to Bob Mueller and his team under oath. We've found out the hard way from people like Paul Manafort the peril of lying to the FBI or lying to a prosecutor. They didn't have to be in a grand jury. All you have to do is tell the FBI, I wasn't there that day, and if you were, you can go to jail, Uh, even if nothing happened there that day. So it was a very powerful statement to those who were cooperating uh, from the White House, both in the White House and people who had left the White House. So now we're in a different situation where you have two types of statements. You have the tweets and the comments of the president who refused to go under oath, And you have the statements of people who went under oath and told their version of the truth under penalty of going to prison. Now, it seems to me that information should be given much more weight than a presidential tweet. The president didn't go under oath. The president, we know the president lies. I can't tell you that everything he says is a lie, but the Washington Post has found 10,000 times that he's told a lie. So, 10,000 times in two and a half years, you can assume he's a liar. So, for instance, late last week, uh, there was a story about Don McGahn's testimony. And the president tweeted that he never told Don McGahn to lie. And the stories I read said the president told him he never told him to lie and Don McGahn. What wasn't there was the context of Don McGahn said it under oath. So by saying he never told him to lie... He's calling Don McGahn a liar, and he's calling him a felon, (laughs) you know, a criminal, because he lied to the FBI. And we we have to change the weighting on these things. And I think particularly when you look at television that's using, you know, words uh, and images, you've got to find some way to label these things as here's a Trump tweet. And it should say right underneath it, not has has refused to go under oath to defend this. 
And when you've got something from the Mueller report, you've got to find a way to say, we should give this a lot of weight because he was under oath. I know that there's people in the, the news business who are creative can, that can figure out a way to do that. But I really think we have to do that at a minimum. I don't know about journalists, but you certainly are ready to be a judge, Judge Joe, deciding the admissibility of evidence and the credence that we give what gets to come before the court. I have other advice for the media if you want to hear that. <laughs> we could do an entire episode on that. Yeah. Can, can I do two other things? So I'm serious. There, there are two things that have been bothering me. One is there's been a lot of wrestling with what do you do with these presidential tweets? They are official statements, but they're clearly at some point just the ranting and raving of a guy who's watching Fox and Friends. We discount them a little bit where we shouldn't. I'm under the view that you can't just ignore them. He's the president of the United States. When he makes a statement, it's the official policy of the United States. What he's not is a political pundit. When he tweets about Democratic candidates or what the Democrats are doing and tries to put himself in the middle of the Democratic nomination, there's no obligation for the press to cover that. None at all. It has nothing to do with his duties as president. And I think there should be a much stronger filter in there when he's up to mischief about what's going on in the Democrats because he is not a pundit and he has no standing in the Democratic nomination and he will just continue to try to sow chaos in if every time he tweets something, it's breaking news on TV. That's one. The second one, and I did this one I did a column on for a CNN.com last week. There's this knee-jerk thing that happens, um, and, and it happened in the aftermath of the Mueller report, uh, which is, are you going to focus on investigations, or are you going to do the kitchen table issues? And Democrats argue, we can do both. And, and they can do both. I look at it from the other side, which is, can the media do both? Can they cover the investigations and cover the kitchen table issues that matter? And I'll give you an example from last weekend. I just happened to turn on the TV and was watching a cable show. And there was a reporter at a Kamala Harris town hall. And the anchor said, what has she said on impeachment uh, and whether the Democrats should impeach or not? And the reporter said, well, she really hasn't said anything. Uh, nothing in her prepared remarks. And over three town halls, only one person asked the question. So it appears that these, at least these voters don't care. So then they went right into Elizabeth Warren, even though she was standing at a Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren calling for impeachment. And, you know, so they made the whole piece about uh, impeachment when that's not what she was talking about. Now, the thing was, I don't know what she was talking about. She might have been talking about tax cuts. She might have been talking about health care. The reporter didn't tell us that. So then we went go into the next segment, and you have the panel of experts, which I pretend to be from time to time but wasn't on this panel. And the first question was, well, with you, you Democrats are going to be focusing only on investigations. Why do The public wants to know about kitchen table issues. Why aren't you talking about that? Well, if they don't cover what Democrats are saying, why would Democrats continue to talk about that? Because these guys need to get attention in order to get elected. So Democrats need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. But so does the media.
So it's an interesting point you make about the president using his Twitter account to make official pronouncements. And I think there is, in fact, either a website or an alternative Twitter account that actually posts the tweets as official announcements from the White House to contextualize it for people to make it real and and, um, give it the due weight that it would have coming from the president of the United States. But this question is actually coming out in a really interesting way in the legal sphere because there's a case that has been pending in New York. New York federal court about the president's Twitter account and whether or not he can block individuals, which he has done, and they have claimed that violates their First Amendment rights and their right to be able to see and hear what their president is doing. And federal courts in the state of New York have said he can't do that. But his lawyers are in an interesting position because they've had to argue that what he's saying through Twitter aren't really official pronouncements and don't really have anything. He doesn't really have anything important to say necessarily, and it's not that big of a deal, and he's just spouting off. Um, But at the same time, also acknowledging that he does make official pronouncements about foreign policy, and they have to defend against both of those issues in a federal court. And that's playing out right now. And uh, I think it's an interesting case. Yeah, I actually know a couple of the people who brought the case. And it, it was a fascinating way to highlight uh, this problem, which is he at times is the president of the United States. At times, he's your crazy uncle, and he wants to have it both ways. Uh, and his staff want to be able to say, oh, that's just him. That's just him going off on Twitter. That's no big deal. And then the next tweet is about imposing uh, tariffs uh, that devastate Iowa farmers. Right. It was a tough yeah. job for yeah. the lawyers. Yeah. No, and and I, you know, I, I don't know the law, but common sense says you can't have it both ways. What else strikes you in in the past week now that we've been able to absorb the report and read it and talk about it a ton? Not to say that my predictions of last week were coming true, but my predictions of last week are coming true. Uh, the first day of this report, particularly when you have a dense, you know, 400 plus page thing, if you're defending yourself, the first day is is the best day. And you really want to like put it to bed if you can, the first day. Because what happens on the second day story, the third day story, the fourth day story, the eighth day story, is people really have the ability to go in and bring to life particular pieces of this. Because nobody, even I think the best journalists in Washington and New York, could take the massive amount of information in the report and write a 1,400-word story saying, I got it all. And people will really understand everything in that report based on my story. And I knew when that report came out that over the next days, the first day story was great. The second day story, not so good. The third day story is when they're going to get us. Well, we're in the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth day. And every day you open the paper, you turn on the TV, and reporters are picking out pieces of this and bringing them to life. Don McGahn was probably... Uh, the first one. The New York Times ran a compelling op-ed from, I think, an NYU professor um, at the end of the week arguing that there is a case for collusion and conspiracy based on uh, what Mueller had. Mueller just chose not to reach that conclusion. So all of the dissecting of the report is bad news for Trump. Uh, And that's not going to get better uh, at any point because there's only so many times you can say, no collusion, this is a hoax. Oh, I bet we're going to test that theory. Yeah. Well, you know, there's only so many times you can say it and, and it will have an impact. And we know from the national polls uh, that the pushback isn't working. 
It's certainly not working beyond his base. He's at his lowest point uh, of his presidency. That's one thing. I think the hearings that will happen, those are going to bring them even more to life. If the last week has been about telling the story, it's been telling the story in black and white. The hearings on Capitol Hill are going to tell it in color, and people are going to see, and they're going to see real people uh, telling their story, and by and large, uh, uh, painting a awful picture of the president, both as a person and as a, uh, a president uh, who has no respect for the law, no respect for the Constitution, and frankly, no respect for anyone around him. And I think that will be devastating uh, to him as we go forward. One of the other really interesting things, if you said to me, of all of these people, you know, if you could have a chance to sit in a room and talk to them for an hour, who would that be? I think most people would say Bob Mueller. I wouldn't. I'd say Rod Rosenstein. He's the one guy that I can't figure out. On the plus side, he managed to get Bob Mueller, and he managed to allow Mueller to do his work and to finish his work. On the negative side, he has shown hard to understand, incomprehensible deference to the president, someone who, if you believe, Andrew McCabe, uh, Rosenstein wanted to wear a wire to go in because he thought the president was unfit for office and then wrote a letter for the, the president to get rid of him. If you believe James Comey, uh, Rod Rosenstein, just before writing that letter, brought James Comey into a group of FBI agents, praised him and said, please talk about your work because we all need to know that, and then sat down within a day or two and wrote the letter to get rid of him. And he stood with with Bill Barr and defended Bill Barr in a way that's indefensible. I don't want to revisit and go get all crazy again on Bill Barr, but what he did um, the day the Mueller report came out is just unforgivable. I don't know where he was personally on that, uh, but he has since gone on to praise uh, Bill Barr um, and praise the president. In his post-Mueller speech uh, to other lawyers, uh, in in defending the rule of law, he quoted the president, someone who has no respect for the rule of law. So it's the one wild card I'd love to have him sitting where you're sitting right now and say, you know, explain this to me. Or I'll spend $37 and buy his book. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll get the chance. Maybe he'll he'll be able to sit across from us and, and ask those questions. I think he acknowledged in that speech last night that not everybody uh, agreed with the way he was doing things in case we hadn't heard, I think, was the, the joke. The one other thing that you just reminded me, the thing that probably bugged me more than anything, just about the speech, was he was very critical of Obama. Let's put that into some context. Obama tried to to make this a much more public appeal. But Obama, being who he is, a principled president, did not want to come out and have a direct influence on the campaign. So he did what you would think he would do. He went to Congress and said, let's hold hands. Let's do this in a bipartisan fashion. Let's not point fingers at anyone. Because even then, I don't think they were highly sensitive to collusion. They were just highly sensitive to the interference. And they were just breadcrumbs um, uh, on the the collusion piece of this. And Mitch McConnell said no. And, you know, Mitch McConnell does what Mitch McConnell always does, is he put party ahead of his country. And, you know, he can can say what he wants. But when he is given a choice, 
to help his party or help his country, he will always help his party. Uh, you know, Merrick Garland is just the tip of the iceberg on that. So, I, you know, I think there's some things that are just, um, you know, the the nicest way I can say it is head scratchers. Um, I don't understand it, and I look forward to um, him sitting with us and explaining it. All right. So switching gears once more. Last week, we held round one of the great impeachment debate between Joe and Philippe Reines. Joe, both you and Philippe had op-eds published in The New York Times on opposite sides of the to impeach or not impeach question. But now that we have a few more minutes of your time and now that Philippe is, of course, not here to defend himself, give us a little bit of the backstory of that op-ed. Well, my biggest problem is that when whoever edits these things edited and that you even left Philippe in. I mean, he just was ridiculous, the stuff he was saying. Uh, no, let me be serious. It's always fun for me to uh, debate Philippe. We've been debating various issues of big import and of total inane import uh, for decades. Uh, one of the smartest, savviest guys in the Democratic Party. And uh, it was really... Um, interesting and I think valuable to have the debate between two people who share the same set of values but have come down on opposite sides of a really difficult issue. So in addition to having won the debate, I enjoyed the debate. And I'm sure when uh, we do the rematch on his new podcast that everybody's waiting to hear, Unredacted, he will use all the same home field advantages that I used uh, during ours. If you listen to that carefully, you find a almost agonizing uh, process that Democrats are going through. You know, one of the ways that I described it, uh, that I describe it is the difference between holding the president accountable, which we all should do, and punishing the president. And that's a visceral, emotional thing. And I think my argument is to stay away from emotion and just stick with the facts. But I'm very sensitive to all of the arguments about the precedent this sends, that you're allowing the president to get away with it. And I think Philippe made a very strong case uh, on the opposite, uh, opposite side of this. I just, at the end of the day, believe that going through this process and having the president of the United States acquitted in the Senate sends a message to the American public that makes it more likely for this man who's unfit for the office to get reelected and sends a message to the rest of the world that the rule of law and democracy is not something that the United States is committed to anymore. I don't think people around the world are caught up in the debate Democrats are of how to move forward, whether it's impeachment or not impeachment. But if we go through this process and it turns out, as I know it will, that he's acquitted, I think it makes exporting democracy a whole lot harder than it is now. So how did you come to write the op-ed? What put the idea in your head to put pen to paper on this one right now? Well, a little surprising is it wasn't right now. You know, when the Democrats took over Congress um, and Nancy Pelosi was getting ready to take the speakership, I knew impeachment was going to, you know, in many ways be the seminal question of the first year. Do we or don't we? And I started thinking about how we'd go forward, what might happen, what were the political calculations and, you know, it really struck me that there was not only risk, but there was also opportunity. So I sat in January and basically wrote the op-ed. When I got it in a place where I thought it made sense to me, I sent it off to the New York Times. And they were very receptive to it, but it just wasn't the right time. As they told me, it's not ripe yet, you know. 
And, you know, over the next couple of months, we revisited it. We continued the conversation, and I agreed with them. Uh, you know, after that first burst, it, it wasn't ripe. And as we got to the Mueller report and the inevitable speculation the day after that Democrats now have to face the choice, it was ripe. And so on Friday, they said, well, we'd like to use it next week. Uh, I said, well, let me take a, another look at it just to make sure it's current, you know, freshen it up. And I literally spent the weekend debating uh, with myself whether I still believed it, whether having read the Mueller report, did I still believe that we shouldn't move forward with impeachment? And I have to tell you, a lot of Saturday and the early part of Sunday, I was on Philippe's side. And I was ready to just send them a note saying, this is no longer where I am. What happened Sunday? Well, I, I kept thinking about it. It finally hit me that nothing had changed. What I thought had happened in January and what I thought the facts were, Mueller confirmed. So the president had committed high crimes and misdemeanors. He had disrespected the office and abused power. I knew that in January. Couldn't prove it, but I knew it when I wrote it. And that's kind of what tipped it which was I didn't want the emotion and the anger about reading the details of how he'd done all these things to move me away from my basic point that this was too risky for the Democrats and going in the direction that my op-ed argued offered a huge opportunity for the country. And what I mean by that is I really do view Trump as a cancer on the Republican Party. And it's you know rotting from the inside. Trumpism is Republicanism, and they don't stand for anything except the whim of Donald Trump and the grievance of Donald Trump. That's not sustainable uh, as a party in the post-Trump era. And I think he's done so much damage that we have the ability for, in the short run, Democrats to take advantage at the ballot box and put more Democrats in. And just as importantly, one of the criticisms I got from the op-ed was, oh, you want a one-party system. I absolutely don't. A, vi a vibrant, vital Republican Party is important. But if the party crumbles, they'll have to rebuild. And the optimist in me says they can rebuild in, a, in the model of a party that wants to get things done. The model of the 1960s, the 1970s, where Republicans were for saving the environment. We wouldn't have the Civil Rights Act. We wouldn't have the Clean Water and Clean Air Act if we didn't have Republicans working with Democrats. Democrats didn't do this all on their own. And the perversion of the Republican Party that started with Newt Gingrich, that took full hold with the Tea Party in 2010, and then, you know, continued through the Obama administration that created the atmosphere that gave us Trumpism, that that was dead. And that Republicans realized that to get elected and to be successful and get the sort of pro-market, small government things that they really believed in, they had to change. All of this could happen. All of these things are less likely to happen if the United States Senate acquits Donald J. Trump. And finally, the last topic we want to pick your brain about is one of your favorites, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, who I think has had a couple of things to say about you as of late, which we want you to comment on if you wish. But she held the first White House press briefing in almost two months. But there was a catch. It was held on Bring Your Children to Work Day, and she only answered questions from the children of the White House Press Corps. I'm sure you have a couple of thoughts on that. Well, I was pleased that one of them said, why won't you answer my daddy's questions? But that's that's good. 
you know, you've gone from the ridiculous to the absurd to there aren't words to describe. Um, I tweeted uh, the day the Mueller report came out that Sarah Sanders would not go into the briefing room again and brief. And I don't consider briefing um, nine-year-olds um, a, a White House briefing because she can't. She can't defend her own lies. And referring back to what we've talked about a little bit already, she can't defend the president any longer. If she had had a briefing, let's pick a day, Thursday of last week, uh, the first question would have been, Don McGahn says the president ordered him to fire Bob Mueller. The president says he never d did that. Um, Sarah, what's true? Well, what are her potential answers? Well, the president's true. The follow-up is, well, is the president calling Don McGahn a liar, and does he believe he committed a criminal act by lying to the FBI? And maybe she has a dodge for that. And then the next question is, well, why won't the president say this under oath? Why won't he do more than just tweet? There is no answer. She can no longer navigate telling any sort of story. Plus, there's not a reporter in the room who believes her anymore. Every reporter will start every briefing with everything she says she has to uh, in some way document, validate, or prove because she has proven herself uh, to be a liar. So I don't think that she, she's going to brief again. You'll see her on Fox News. You'll see her combatively on maybe some of the other cable and television networks as a way of just going out and spouting the president's um, talking points. But that's what a campaign press secretary does, not what the White House press secretary does. There's a real difference between a campaign spokesman and the White House press secretary. The White House press secretary is serving the American public while serving the, to promote the president's agenda. The campaign spokesman is just serving the political purposes of the president. How do I know this? I've had both jobs. Uh, I was Bill Clinton's uh, press secretary in 1996 for his campaign, where I focused solely on his political fortune. I, 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 I did not have a voice at the table on foreign policy issues. I had a voice at the table on political issues. Uh, and it was very different. And when I transitioned over to be the White House press secretary, I knew I was in a very different position. And it was a different set of rules, a different set of norms. Uh, and those jobs are very different. You can't do both of them by definition. Uh, and right now, Sarah's only doing one of them. The White House press secretary's job is very simple. Um, it can get hard. It can get uh, nasty and difficult. But your job is simple. You have to commit to briefing the reporters on a regular basis. And the reporters basically represent the American public. You can't have 300 million people come into the room and start asking questions. So reporters are deputized. It's an imperfect system, but it's the best we've got. So brief on a regular basis. And secondly, tell the truth. Some people will say, well, that's easy. You just tell the truth. Well, it's not as easy as it sounds, but it's also not as hard as it sounds. It is very easy to use phrases like, I don't have anything for you on that today which is the truth, which is we have decided to not talk to you about that today. There is just no justification for lying. And we've been through, um, press secretaries, um, many of us have been through situations where there were military actions that were uh, ongoing or imminent, and you figure out a way to tell the truth without putting any lives at risk. That's, that's where it gets complicated. But Sarah has failed on both of those. Um, she doesn't brief regularly. She hasn't briefed in eight, nine weeks, I think. And she doesn't tell the truth. 
And what she's doing now is on taxpayer dollars serving as Donald Trump's reelection campaign spokesperson. It's, it's inappropriate, but more importantly, listen, politics is politics. You get around whether people are being partisan or not. I was partisan at times, trying to make the point, whether it be Ken Starr or the Republican leadership. So uh, there's a line you hope not to cross it, but you probably do from time to time. Even the best do. But really more importantly is the public is missing out on something they have a right to expect. Not everyone, in fact, most people don't care enough about what's going on at the White House to tune in. But you know what? There are hundreds of thousands of people who, who do care and will tune in every day and watch it because it's a way to hold your government accountable. This government right now is not accountable because it doesn't answer questions on a regular basis. And when they do answer it, they lie. I don't feel sorry for the press. The press covers all sorts of politicians, great ones and scoundrels. The people losing are the public because they're not informed. And it is a deliberate strategy from Donald Trump to use disinformation to keep people confused and uninformed. It's a cynical, disgusting strategy. And it has a chance of working. And that, that should be really troubling to everyone. All right. We could keep talking, I'm sure, about all of the news of the past week, but we've got plenty more episodes for that. So for now, we'll sign off. Thanks for listening and thanks for being here. Thanks. Last week, former Vice President Joe Biden announced his candidacy for president of the United States in a straight-to-camera pitch about his belief in American ideals and the need to get rid of President Donald Trump. Folks will continue to agree or disagree about the merits of his campaign, and that's not our intention here. One thing Biden and his critics can agree on is that 28 years ago, in a United States Senate Judiciary hearing room, Anita Hill deserved better. So this week, the final word goes to Anita Hill. Telling the world is the most difficult experience of my life. But it is very close to having to live through the experience that occasioned this meeting. I may have used poor judgment early on in my relationship with this issue. I was aware, however, that telling at any point in my career could adversely affect my future career. And I did not want early on to burn all the bridges to the EEOC. As I said, I may have used poor judgment. Perhaps I should have taken angry or even militant steps, both when I was in the agency or after I left it. But I must confess to the world that the course that I took seemed the better as well as the easier approach. I declined any comment to newspapers, but later when Senate staff asked me about these matters, I felt I had a duty to report. I have no personal vendetta against Clarence Thomas. I seek only to provide the committee with information which it may regard as relevant. It would have been more comfortable to remain silent. I took no initiative to inform anyone. But when I was asked by a representative of this committee to report my experience, I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. Words Matter will be back next week. 
and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.